now ends tomorrow. It's a time, one of the most significant days, or if not the most significant day in the Jewish ritual calendar. This is Yom Kippur, starts this evening, and uh, it's a time, if you have Jewish friends, very serious day. It's a time, especially tomorrow, reflection, repentance, uh, hoping to get their name preserved in the Book of Life. If you want to hear more about this, we had a rabbi a few years ago who visited with us and his talked about the High Holy Days, and that's up on our special speakers list on the Dean Bible uh, Ministries website. So I'm going to go ahead and play this. This is a prayer for Israel. This is a prayer for Israel that is done by the uh, chief cantor the, called the Chazan. That's the Hebrew for cantor, the chief cantor for the IDF. And uh, the words uh, that are in English across the bottom, and you can read along with that. So, Israel, 
את זה הם יודעים לעשות, אלא הגישה אל הפרזה המוזיקלית, הגישה אל הטקסט היא כזאת שעולם החזנות יש לו עוד נציג מייצג בתוך צה"ל. Yeah. 
Well, I thought you all would appreciate seeing that. You know, we live in interesting times, as everybody knows, watching uh, the events uh, on the news, especially in the last two weeks since the attack on the uh, U.S. Uh, embassies in Cairo and in Benghazi in Libya, and watching the response of people both in the, US, uh, in the U.S. on different sides of the political aisle, watching the way the different narratives that are put out, all leading up to... Uh, and that was, what, two weeks ago, lead, leading up to events that occurred uh, today with uh, uh, Ahmadinejad from Iran addressing the U.N. with his, uh, just his, all of his evil, denying a history of Israel. I think he's, actually, I think he spoke yesterday, denying that Israel had a history that was more than 60 uh, years in the Middle East. Uh, denying the Holocaust, and then uh, today uh, our president addressed uh, the U.N., and if you haven't paid attention to it, he reaffirmed uh, the fact that uh, <clears throat> that the U.S. would not stand for a nuclear Iran, but yet under his watch, Iran has uh, uh, enriched, I think, 85 or 90 percent of the uranium that Iran has enriched has been uh, on the watch of this president. It just seems to me that, that we hear a lot of words and we see little action. We hear a lot of talk, and you'll hear a lot of talk in some of the ads that come out politically, talking about how this nation wants uh, is a friend of Israel. And yet yesterday, or today in his speech, I forget when it was, but, but our president said that uh, Israel is one of our closest allies in the Middle East. I mean, he makes these slips of the tongue that, that indicate the, the, where his heart is, and, and coming out also today saying that, that there was no future for those who, uh, speaking of this uh, film about, uh, that is, uh, people have said is allegedly the cause, the only people who are really giving uh, attribution to this uh, YouTube video or trailer for this film about Muhammad is having any significance happens to be uh, the Democrat leaders in the White House and the State Department. Uh, they're the ones who made this popular and made it known. I mean, it is insane what is said uh, by this administration and what is not said. And we need to pay more attention to what isn't done and what isn't said as opposed to the things that are, are said, especially when we look to the Scriptures, because when we as Christians look at the Scriptures and we see the emphasis that God puts on Israel, 
Whether Israel in the Old Testament is in obedience or disobedience, they are still the apple of God's eye. That is the grace of God towards, uh, and which we as Christians rely on because God uh, uh, loves us despite our whether we're obedient or disobedient. His love for us never changes. His love for Israel never changes. He, they are always his people, even in rebellion, even in discipline, even as we believe when they are out of the land. Whatever the circumstances may be, they're still God's people, and God has made a promise that he will bless those who bless Israel and judge those or curse those who treat Israel disrespectfully. I mean, it's really strong in the Hebrew. Two different words are used for curse, as we've seen before. And, and this is such a crucial time in history. I believe that we have not seen a time like this to this degree in history with, with Europe standing in the balance, not only economically, but uh, demographically. Many of you have seen some of the demographic videos that have gone around as you've seen the rise in the Islamic populations uh, inside many of these European countries where they are within five or ten years of reaching Islamic majorities. And we are in the only thing that's going to give give us uh, survival and strength in the days to come as believers is going to be the Word of God, knowing God has a plan because we're teetering on the edge of what if God allows it to happen, and many times it could have happened in history and didn't. Uh, we could see uh, true chaos, in, uh, chaos like we haven't seen since the worst and darkest days of the Second World War. And it, with the weapons that are available today and with the spread of populations, and I've heard from numerous sources about the uh, <clears throat> hard evidence of many uh, Hezbollah operatives that have made their way into the U.S. across our poorest border in the south who are operating in sleeper, who are just sleeper cells in the U.S. And our only hope is, is, is God. And uh, it's, it's a quite inspiring to hear the cantor sing about God, our rock and our redeemer. And we have a stronger sense of that as, as believers because in Christ because we know that he is our rock and he is our redeemer. And he is the only one who controls history and that we can rest in him and trust in him no matter how chaotic or dark things appear. And trust me, you're not in touch with what's going on in the world today. They are very, very dark now that the Muslim Brotherhood controls most of North Africa. Muslim Brotherhood controls through, through Hamas, uh, Gaza Strip, and with the chaos in Syria, uh, it could easily go into control there. You've got uh, Ahmadinejad in Iran. It's really serious, so we need to be in prayer for this election and prayer for our nation and pray for wise leaders who see things as they are and not as political correctness wants them to be. So let, let, let me open in prayer before we get into our study this evening. Father, we're thankful we have you to come to. You are our eternal rock and refuge, our fortress. You are our strong tower, as David says in the Psalms, and you are the one to whom we rely. And because we know that you have a plan, we can claim the promise of Isaiah 41.10 to fear not because you are with us. And uh, you are the one who guides and directs us, and we should not be anxious. We need to be uh, wise. We need to take steps to as much as we can to uh, <clears throat> preserve and protect the security of our homes and our families financially as well as physically. But we know ultimately that you are the one in control, and we seek you as the one who protects us. 
And Father, we pray for our nation. We pray that we might continue to be steadfast in support of Israel. But when we have leaders, some of whom we have today, who talk out of both sides of their mouth, who say one thing and do something else, it is extremely dangerous. And we pray that there might be a change in leadership and administration uh, this year and that those who are in power who are not truly supportive of Israel are only politically supportive as the polls lead, but not those who are uh, truly uh, supportive of Israel from the very core of their being as as Bible-believing Christians are. Uh, that gives us a sense of, of loyalty to Israel that goes beyond politics and beyond uh, any kind of partisan plays, but is grounded upon the eternal realities of your promise in the Abrahamic covenant. And Father, we see in our study this evening in Acts, in the Apostle Paul, another aspect of this shift in your plan in history, but one that has not left Israel behind, but one that promises that one day there will be a turning, a vast turning in Israel uh, to the Lord Jesus as Messiah, and that in that turning all Israel will be saved. Father, we pray as we study this evening, we might be challenged in our study and application of these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are continuing in Acts. And Acts is the spread, the spread of the gospel. We started with Acts 1-8. And if you remember, in Acts 1-8, God, I mean, Jesus Christ told the disciples, the 11 at that time, uh, that they were to be his witnesses, and that's a critical word, a word that has application not just for them but for us. We are <clears throat> the future generations that Jesus was talking to through the, through the disciples, to be witnesses of God's grace, witnesses of, of Jesus as Messiah to the entire world, witnesses the rest of Scripture teaches, witnesses before the angels, because they learn of God's love and God's grace from us in ways that they never personally, individually uh, experienced or witnessed within the, the history of the angelic, uh, angelic revolt. But they see things demonstrated in us. And so we're witnesses to the angels and we're witnesses uh, to one another. And so this term, uh, witnesses, is one that uh, carries all the way through Acts, and we've seen the witness of the apostles in the early chapters. We've seen the witness of the <clears throat> of the seven that were chosen in Acts uh, Acts six. We've seen the witness of of Stephen, especially, and when he is uh, witnessing, standing there and stoned by the Sanhedrin. It was this young, radical. Uh, young man hostile to Christ and Christianity named Saul of Tarsus who is looking on with approval while he is watching over the outer garments and the robes of the men of the, the people of the Sanhedrin who are stoning uh, Stephen. And that witness of Stephen's death, because the word, the, the Greek word that is used, that, that means witness is martyro. Martyreo is the verb, martyreo, and martyreo comes over into English as martyr. And so the ultimate witness is when one gives their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ as Stephen did. And so that is a witness, uh, one way in which the truth is witnessed to, uh, to Saul of Tarsus. 
And there were many others that I'm sure that, as according to the testimony of, of, of uh, Saul, later known as Paul, and the witness of others, that he dragged uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of believers in Jesus as a Messiah uh, before the Sanhedrin, threw them in prison, put them in chains, hauled them uh, into places where they would be uh, executed. So for the last two weeks and this week, we're probably uh, we're on part three of Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion. And this is, there, there's, it's funny, scholars can get into all kinds of interesting, weird little uh, debates over things. Is, is this a conversion or not? And it is a conversion we know as, as, as believers in Jesus Christ because we know Paul turned from, and convert means to turn, he turns from a rejection of Jesus as Messiah to accepting Jesus as Messiah. But in another sense, and one that I don't know the answer to, and one that can cause, we could probably get into a lot of, a lot of debates, is Saul as Saul. Saul coming to Jerusalem to study rabbinic thought, to, to study under Gamaliel, to be one of the great, if not the greatest student of Hebrew scriptures of, of his generation. And he came to, he probably came to Jerusalem long before Jesus began his public ministry. Was he an Old Testament believer? Now there's a question. How do we? Nothing would indicate that. Nothing says there. Are, there's this generation there in Israel at that time, a generation of Jews, some of whom, like like Anna and, and Simon, there in in uh, the temple when Jesus was born, who looked upon that infant and knew that was the Messiah, and they were already Old Testament believers, and they they're making that transition. And there were many who were there on the day of Pentecost, and uh, and subsequently with when Peter's second sermon, when he's uh, there at the occasion of the healing of the lame man, there were many who were Old Testament believers, and others who were not, and yet they many came to know and to understand that Jesus was the Messiah. Where where Saul was at personally, in relation to uh, the Old Testament, he may have been like and probably was like many of the Pharisees, like. Nicodemus was when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3, someone who knew the law. Nicodemus was is probably not his name, but a title, and, and it means a, a ruler of the people. And it was a title given to him, and he was, there is a legend among, um, among the Jews that he was one of the most well-known uh, Pharisees and experts in the Torah at the time of, of Jesus and a teacher of the Torah and the scriptures in Jerusalem. But his personal name isn't given, sort of, many of these rabbis were given special titles in honor of their, uh, of their position. And so he is known probably in the Bible and in history by this title, Nicodemus, which is not his name. Not like Joseph of Arimathea was the name of, of that particular individual. And we know from John that they were also secret disciples. But before John 3 in that conversation with Jesus, with all of his knowledge of the Torah and the Old Testament, Nicodemus was not someone who was regenerate. He was not someone who understood faith in the promise of God and in God alone and that promise alone as the foundation for his righteousness, but he was still seeking righteousness on his own. And that was Paul's, Paul's uh, testimony from Philippians chapter 3 and other passages we see. He believed that it was the righteousness that came from the law 
that would give him standing before God. So, so we can answer the question, I think, from Scripture clearly that he was not a, an Old Testament believer, though he wanted to know God. And as I pointed out last time, he was positive to God. He wanted to know God, but that, this was covered up by layers and layers and layers of, of uh, callous, calluses, of uh, uh, the pr- ongoing practice of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and it took a remarkable act of God, of uh, Jesus Christ, to appear to him. And that was not just... Uh, I think many people will make the mistake of saying, well, this was necessary in order for him to become a believer. That's not the purpose that Jesus appears to to Saul on the road to Damascus. The reason Jesus personally appears to Saul on the road to Damascus is because it is at that point that he is commissioned as an apostle and to fit the criteria laid down for an apostle, he has to be directly commissioned and he has to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. And so the reason Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus isn't because that's what it takes so that uh, Saul will respond to the gospel. If that were true, then, then we would say, well, why doesn't Jesus appear to all kinds of different people in history? But Jesus appeared to Saul because it's related to his commissioning as an apostle of Jesus Christ and to fit that uh, particular criteria. So what we've seen in the past as we've looked at the different accounts is that uh, Paul has gotten a letter from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go to Damascus, and there in Damascus uh, he is going to seek out uh, those Jews in the synagogues there who have converted uh, converted to Christ and who have trusted in, in him. And on his way to Damascus, suddenly Jesus will appear to him in a bright light. Now, we haven't looked specifically at the Acts 9 passage. We've looked at the Acts 22 and 26 passages and other corollary passages where Paul describes what took place at that particular time so that now I'm stopping to go back and look at the specifics in Acts 9. Now, there are differences in these accounts, and some people have tried to make something of those differences but the differences are simply related to the story that, that Luke is telling. Luke is telling a story, and the story that Luke is telling is the story of how the Holy Spirit spread Christianity from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the, uh, of the, of the earth, the Roman Empire. So he started at Jerusalem, and then that's the first six chapters, and then there's a persecution that arose uh, with the death of Stephen, at the end of chapter 7, and then we see uh, a picture of the gospel going through Philip to Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch down in, in Judea. And as, as uh, uh, Philip then traveled back to his home in Caesarea by the sea, he traveled through Judea going from village to village and, and uh, proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing people. So that chapter, uh, <clears throat> chapter 8, uh, sees the spread of the uh, of the gospel to Judea and Samaria, and then in Acts chapter nine, we we see a break in that action as we focus on Saul and his conversion. Because what happens here is Saul becomes called as an apostle to the Gentiles. This is the time of his calling and commissioning, and as I've pointed out in dealing with the um, with the chronology here. 
And the chronology that I gave you at the beginning in the handout related to, to the chronology of the book of Acts, Jesus was crucified on Passover in uh, 33. Paul, at the latest, uh, is converted in 35. There are some scholars who believe that it, less than a year has gone by, and I think that's the quickest, shortest amount of time that it could possibly be, but somewhere between a year and three years from the crucifixion of Christ, we see the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, probably, uh, according to the handout that I gave you, uh, probably the summer of 35 is, is as good a guess as any, and this is when this event takes place. And approximately uh, two to three years transpires between uh, this time and the time that uh, Saul will leave or uh, Jerusalem and go into uh, obscurity back back in back in Tarsus. So we see the events here taking place in Damascus, and I'm going to relate this to some of the uh, narrative that Paul gives of his own life in Galatians one, trying to look at the chronology here, so we have a basic understanding of what goes on uh, with Paul. He he saved. He go, we're going to see that he goes into the city of Damascus. He's got three days where he's blind before uh, God sends uh, Ananias to, to heal him, uh, to heal his sight and restore his sight. And then he will begin to preach. Now, what we see in Galatians 1.12 is Paul defending his apostleship and, he said, and his gospel and what he's teaching. And he says that I neither received it from man. And here he's talking about the fact that his personal understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament promises and prophecies, that he learned that, not not from the witnesses of, of Stephen, though he heard that, not from the witnesses of others that he arrested and tortured and, and was responsible for their execution, not from them, but he, what, what convinces him, the, the, the complete revelation of that gospel comes when Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So that's what he's describing in Galatians 1.12. I neither received it, that is the gospel, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 13 and 14, he describes his previous life in Judaism, how he persecuted the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it, and advanced, verse 14, in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries in his own nation, being more exceedingly zealous or passionate. Uh, or just He just is in a self-righteous um, passion. He is, he is lit on fire to defend Judaism against what he sees at that time as an assault. And then he talks about what transpired in his conversion. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through the grace. All he's emphasizing here is that God had a plan for his life from eternity past, and he didn't know what it was, but it gets enacted at this particular time, and it is for this plan, and it's God's plan, to reveal his son in me, verse 16, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's why he's called. Now, I just want to do a little overview here in the next three verses to get, sort of get the chronology and we'll come back to this later on. He says, <clears throat> I didn't immediately uh, confer with flesh and blood. So what he's saying is, I, I didn't immediately go consult with the apostles. I got my information, he's saying, about the gospel directly from Jesus Christ. 
I didn't then go sit and sit in a conference and sit in Bible study, but instead he says, uh, I went to uh, Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now that really covers a somewhat lengthy period of time. We don't really know how long he was out in Arabia. Arabia is just the area just a little bit outside of Damascus. You go five or ten miles, you are out in what was generally known as Arabia. It's not Saudi Arabia down in the south, which is what we think of today, but any of that area that today is Syria or southern Syria, Jordan, uh, down towards uh, Petra and further south, all of that was known as, as Arabia. So he goes out in the desert or the wilderness for a period of time, then he returned to Damascus, and then after three years, so he's in Damascus for three years. During that time that he's, quote, in Damascus, he's outside in the wilderness for weeks or months. We don't know how long. He never uh, specifically stays. And it's not until after three years, according to verse 18, that he goes to Jerusalem, and there he meets Peter, and, and uh, <clears throat> then later James, but he's only there for 15 days, and then he's going to leave. So that gives us kind of a time frame for chapter 9. Here's another map showing the <clears throat> different regions. In the area of Damascus is up here in the upper right-hand corner. This area, the whole region is known as Coliseria, which is the, the whole realm of, uh, of Syria's part of the uh, Roman Empire, all of this area in the yellow along the edge here, this would have all been known generally as just Arabia. So anywhere out here would have satisfied the description. He doesn't, he doesn't mean he went all the way down uh, towards Mecca or Medina or Saudi, anywhere in Saudi Arabia. He's just out here alone in the wilderness rethinking his, his theology, his understanding of the scriptures now that he is come to truly understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises and, uh, and prophecies. So we see that located up in this, this area here. That gives you just your general uh, geographic area. Here in this map, it identifies this area as the Arabian Desert. Uh, this area, all of this, much of this area here is part of what is modern, modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. At this particular time, it's the kingdom of Nabataea, the Nabataeans down here, uh, King Aretes IV, who's mentioned in one of the other accounts in Acts uh, later on when Paul talks about what happened. Uh, he is the ruler of this area, and his headquarters is down uh, just south of the Dead Sea here in uh, the city of Petra. And his kingdom would extend right up to the uh, near the edge of, of Damascus. So Paul, I mean uh, Luke, begins this account talking about reminding us of Saul. Saul, still breathing threats. That word still indicates picking up the narrative where we left, left off at the beginning of chapter, uh, chapter 8, that Saul was persecuting uh, the church, uh, the church in Jerusalem, and uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 3, uh, Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off mere women, and uh, men and women, rather, and committing them to prison. And then the rest of chapter 8 is a focus on Philip, and now we're back to Saul. Saul's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here's another phrase, 
And here it's a reference not just to those who are mere students of the Lord. The word disciples has a range of meanings. Here it focuses more on those who are uh, overt followers of Jesus. They're not called Christians yet. They're called followers of the way or disciples of the Lord. And he goes to the high priest and asks for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Now, there's some question, too, as to exactly what is taking place at this particular time, because this is, uh, seems to be unusual. Uh, Judea is a Roman province. It's under a Roman procurator. It is at a time when Rome is under author- over the authority of, of this whole area. Herod uh, <clears throat> Antipas I is the, is the uh, king, or excuse me, Herod Agrippa is the king up in the north, and we are... Uh, and this Syria comes, un- Syria or Damascus comes under his uh, his authority to some degree. And so, what gives the people, the, the the Sanhedrin, the authority? And there's some indication that this had a precedent, at least in history, some two or th- uh, two or three centuries earlier. In First Maccabees 15:21, there is a reference to some who are sent out from. Uh, the authorities in Jerusalem to find and bring rebels back uh, for uh, prosecution by the state, and that this indicates some, uh, at least, judicial uh, precedent. It's mentioned by Josephus in uh, a similar situation in the related to the first century that uh, uh, connected with a similar letter of authorization during the first century. So this practice of the Sanhedrin sending out uh, someone on a mission and giving them a letter of authorization seems to have a historical precedent uh, for some time, and so it seems to be uh, a historical uh, event. Uh, He's going to Damascus. Now, Damascus at this time is an extremely significant city. Damascus was about 130 to 135 miles to the northeast of, of Jerusalem. It's the first time that we have seen a reference to Christians outside of Israel. There, are, there is a suggestion here that there are converts to Christianity, believers in Christ, among the Jewish community there in, in Damascus. Now, there was a large Jewish community in Damascus, uh, Josephus, in his writings on the wars of the Jews, uh, during, speaking about the rebellion of the Jews against Rome that started in AD 66, so we're talking about a period that's a little bit later, about 30 years later than the time frame of, of Acts, 40 years later than the time frame of Acts, but it's still within that time frame, and he speaks of between 10, in one place he says 10,000 Jews are, are, are massacred in Damascus, and in another place, he says 18,000. So somewhere between 10 and 18,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus. Now, that wasn't the whole Jewish community in Damascus. We don't know how many that represented, but it clearly shows that there is an extremely large Jewish community in Damascus, and there were a number of synagogues in Damascus. There may have been as many uh, if there were 18,000 Jews that were killed, let's say just for round figures, 20, 25, 30,000 Jews, there could have been as many as uh, 15 or 20, uh, 25 synagogues in Damascus at this time. I read uh, recently, I was reading a, 
uh, testimony of a Holocaust sur- survivor uh, just yesterday, and he had gone back. He was just a teenager at the time and had gone back on a, on a tour in Eastern Europe and had gone to Kosovo where uh, he had uh, originated. And at the, at the beginning of World War II, there were uh, 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 there, there were twenty twenty five thousand Jews in that area, and about twenty to twenty five synagogues, almost one, a synagogue for every thousand Jews, something like that. And now there's only one synagogue there that is that that uh, he was there with a tour group. And in in the Jewish community, I think you have to have ten ma- males to have a minion, which is your minimum number for a prayer group to have a synagogue. And it was only through the males in their group that allowed them to have a minion, a minimum number of ten males in the in the synagogue there in Kosovo. So the Jewish community has almost completely uh, disappeared uh, from from that area since uh, World War II. So that that shows just the, the the difference. So here in Damascus, there was a huge Jewish community. They had a number of synagogues. And so there were a, a number of people probably who were hearing the gospel that Jesus was the Messiah. And so rather than letting this false message, as Paul would have viewed it, take root in Damascus, he wants to go there and root it out to see if he could find any like that men or women and then bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, verses starting with verse 3, we see the description of what happens when suddenly uh, his plans are interrupted by God. Verse 3 says, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, this light is is the glory of God. It is a light beyond any light he has ever seen. It is a light that emanates from the glory of the risen, resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ, who that is so brilliant and so powerful that he, he's knocked to the ground. There is, it's more than just having a spotlight shown on him for the light that emanates from the, from the being of God is a light that has a moral, righteous element to it. And just as we see in some of the descriptions in the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is before the throne of God, he immediately is struck by his own sinfulness and screams out, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. That, so there is this, this moral ethical element to the light of God. And this is why part of what would have struck Paul at that particular time. And he, <clears throat> he uh, falls down and hears a voice. Now, the repetition of his name indicates the seriousness of the situation. Many times we have in Scripture God speaking and calling out and repeating someone's name twice. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you, per-? and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? The identification of Jesus with his, with the believers, those who have trusted in him, is, is so close to persecute believers is to persecute Jesus. There isn't really a doctrine or an emphasis here in this passage on the body of Christ, but it is certainly something we understand from later revelation that we as members of the body of Christ are the physical body, bodily representation of Jesus upon the earth today as he is absent in heaven. We are the body of Christ. That's 
more than simply a, a, a metaphor, more than simply a descriptive term. And so there is this close identity that we have with Jesus, and to persecute Christians is to persecute Jesus. And then Paul says, who are you, Lord? Now, he's asking this question because he's not sure who this is. He hasn't comprehended that this is Jesus of Nazareth, the one whose followers he's persecuting, that's appearing to him. He's not using the term Lord here with a theological connotation. The, the word Lord, kurios in the Greek, uh, Adonai in the Hebrew, was a term that was used uh, as a term of respect for a superior, a, a male superior, as we would use the word sir. It was also a term, Adonai was also a term that was used as a synonym for Yahweh. Yahweh, in, if you look in your Old Testament, uh, will tr- be uh, <clears throat> translated with uh, a lowercase O-R-D, Lord, all in caps, but small caps for O-R-D. And then you have Lord, where it's just a standard capital L and lowercase o-r-d, and that's a, that indicates the original is Adonai. But it has a, a connotation because if you say that someone is Lord, you are saying that they are Yahweh, they are deity. So that was also a meaning. Uh, it is a just a standard term that one would use to as a term of respect to anyone who is in a high office as well. And so there's no indication here in the text that he is recognizing the deity of this person at all. Uh, He is simply recognizing that this is a superior person. And the Lord then identifies himself to Saul and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Again, that uh, uh, identification with the body. And then uh, if you're looking at a New King James or King James Version, uh, we have the statement, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, Jesus said that in the event, but we only learn of that in Paul's account of it later on in Acts chapter 26. It wasn't in this chapter. It's only in a few manuscripts that made up what's called the Textus Receptus, which was a collection of between six and ten uh, Greek manuscripts that Erasmus used and collated together to form the foundation for the first a critical uh, edition of a Greek text in the early part of the 16th century. Now, over a period of uh, 15 or 20 years, uh, Erasmus found additional manuscripts and added those in to to his uh, critical apparatus in the Textus Receptus. That's why I say between six and ten uh, uh, manuscripts is because it, it, it changed over time, and he was constantly improving his his edition, but these were not very old manuscripts, and and we know which which uh, Greek manuscripts they were, and they weren't of the highest quality. And now we have uh, <clears throat> our Greek texts are based on thousands of fragments, thousands of uh, large collections that we have found that are both older and better than the Textus Receptus uh, manuscripts. Textus Receptus isn't identical to the Byzantine text, but it is, or the majority text, but it is similar. It's part of that same family, but it is uh, even the the majority text edition uh, leaves this out, does not include this as part of Acts 
chapter 9. So what we see here compared to the Acts 22 and the Acts 26 first-person accounts of Paul is a more truncated, abridged, abbreviated version because Luke's purpose isn't to tell us everything that happened to Saul on the road to Damascus, but to hit the high points because his trajectory is to show the expansion of Christianity beyond Judea and Samaria, and the key player is for that is going to be uh, Saul, uh, who will be known as Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so Luke sort of hits the high points here because his focus is on, on uh, where this is going and the role Saul, Paul, will play in the advance of the gospel. In verse 6, uh, we read, So he, that is uh, Saul, trembling and astonished. You can just imagine uh, what, what m- must have been happening to him. I'm beyond our conscience conscious awareness just to, to be in, in the presence of the resurrected risen Lord in this kind of event, hearing the voice of, of, of God having this kind of thing happen that's totally beyond anything you expected and just the opposite of what you believed would, would generate in, in anyone just a host of physiological reactions that would leave you, uh, in a, your, your adrenaline would, would spike uh, you would uh, just as a result of that, you would be shaking and trembling, uh, things of that nature. So he is uh, astonished by that, and he's trembling and he's fearful. And it's amazing he could even talk. He's losing he's losing his eyesight because of the brilliance of the light, and he will be blinded as a result of that. And he says, "Lord, what do you want me to do?" Again, he is using the term curios. Uh, uh, or Adonai, still it's not necessarily a recognition of Jesus as deity. That doesn't mean that in this, somewhere in these moments of time, that Saul doesn't believe that Jesus is Messiah. Somewhere in here he does. Somewhere in here he makes that transition. And he understands that Jesus, who is before him, is the Jesus of Nazareth, who is the promised, prophesied Messiah, and he trusts in him, but Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke, you know, it's obvious to us at the conclusion of the story that this has happened. Luke doesn't need to overstate the obvious, so he doesn't. Uh, but you can't go to a passage like this and say, see, he's using the word Lord. That means he's recognizing the lordship of Jesus, and this is key. If you haven't recognized the lordship of Jesus, you're not saved. That is the basic interpretation that we hear from people who uh, espouse what is known as the Lordship Gospel. And by the Lordship Gospel, it's not just as simple as saying that you have to believe Jesus is Lord, but a recognition that you have to be be submitting to the sovereign authority of Jesus, recognizing that he is the sovereign God. And it's not simply a matter of believing in Jesus as the one who died for your sins, but you are also willing to commit yourself to his authority. Trouble is, we don't have commit language here. Commit is not a synonym for believe. If you tell me that it's raining outside, I can believe you, but I am not committing anything. Commit, you look it up in a thesaurus, believe is not a synonym. These are two different words, two different ideas. But in what is called lordship theology, 
you have the idea that you must commit yourself to the authority of God. You must submit yourself to the authority of God at the instant of salvation or you're not saved. It's just, just adding something else. All that we have in Scripture is the command to believe in the Gospel of John, which many believe is the one gospel that is so clearly directed to understanding the the message of the gospel. John uses the verb believe over 95 times. He doesn't use words like commit, invite Jesus into your life, invite Jesus into your heart, um, turn yourself over to Jesus. None of that verbiage is there. It's again and again and again, believe, believe, believe. Uh, Jesus said to Martha at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, do you commit yourself to this? No. Martha, are you going to let me into your heart? No, he doesn't say that. He said, Martha, do you believe this? That's the issue. That's the gospel. And yet we have people today who really muddy that up. So, at this point, somewhere along this, this line, and we don't know how long all of this took place because as we look at, at Paul's later uh, uh, descriptions, we know other things happened. Jesus said other things. Somewhere along here, he trust, has trusted in Jesus as Messiah. I think it's probably before this. And he says, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, some of us might think, because I, I know this applies to one or two in the room, the rest of you have the patience of Job, but for some of us, we would expect that as soon as we walk through the gates of Damascus, that somebody's going to tell us what to do. God's timing is different from that. It's going to be three days before anybody even has a clue as to what is going on, and uh, in there, there will be a vision to Paul that will tell him someone will come, but we don't know exactly when that happens. So he's told to go into the city. He'll be told what to do. And then in verse 8 we read, Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one, because the light has blinded him. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, the picture that I have up here on the screen is from a collection of several black and whites that you'll see here. Uh, on these slides of Damascus, and these were taken at the turn of the last century, 1890s uh, into the early part of the 1900s. They're part of a collection that uh, is part of the collection from the uh, American Hotel or what was originally known as the American Colony in Jerusalem. The American Colony was founded by Horatio and Anna Spofford. Horatio Spofford was the one, the man, the father of the daughters who were uh, killed on the ocean liner. His wife, Anna, survived and uh, <clears throat> telegraphed back to him, saved alone. When he came over, you all know the story. You've heard me tell it many times. It was at the site where they drowned that he wrote um, the, the words, When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. And he wrote those words, and then later, uh, another 10 or 15 years after that event, they moved to Jerusalem and established a colony there. And there were uh, he had really changed his theology a good bit. They'd gone through quite a difficult time of grief. 
but they had become much more oriented to the second coming of Christ, and so that was part of the reason they moved to Jerusalem. He died not long after that. She survived for many, many years, and the American colony became a place where uh, many from the West came. It was a well-known place to exchange ideas, and they had quite a collection of uh, photographs and quite a number of photographers came there who traveled uh, throughout the Middle East. And the originals of these, I've been told, are in the uh, Smithsonian. So I, um, I have a, a collection of these that I, I purchased some years ago that, um, that are quite interesting quite to, uh, to look at because we don't see, you can go to any of these locations in the Middle East today since World War II and you see quite a different place. But basically from the time of Jesus until 1920, they didn't change a whole lot. So it's really interesting to go back and look at these photographs from that time. So this is uh, a photograph that was taken between uh, 1910 and 1920, and this, I believe, is an entry uh, to the gate uh, that was uh, on the other side was the street called Straight. And the street called Straight was at the time of, in the first century, was one of the main thoroughfares uh, 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 in in Damascus, was an area where there was great commerce and was the part of the wealthier district uh, in in Damascus. So he goes there, verse 9 tells us he was there for three days uh, without sight, and he is fasting. And uh, he's fasting, this is part of Judaism, he's fasting because... Uh, probably there are a lot of things at play here emotionally for him as he is thinking about what has occurred. He has had a, a an event take place that has changed every belief system uh, that he had. In verse 10 we read, Now there was a certain disciple. Again, we see now we see in Acts the term disciple begins to take on connotations in some some contexts where it's almost equivalent to a believer. There was a certain disciple at Damascus Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision. Now, God only appears in visions and speaks to people in visions in uh, unique circumstances and situations. There are several events in Acts related to to visions. Uh, He appears to... Uh, there's a reference to God, uh, God appearing to Moses in a vision in Stephen's message in Acts 7:31 to 32. Uh, he appears to Corn- Peter in a vision in Acts 10. He appears to Cor- uh, Cornelius in a vision in Acts 10. Uh, he will appear to Paul in a vision in Acts 16 again and in Acts 18. And these are all uh, related to uh, moving forward this this plan of the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. It's moving out uh, the, the gospel. In Acts chapter 10 especially, we see uh, both Cornelius and Peter being directed by, uh, by God through a vision. And the same thing, uh, we see the same kind of thing going on here. So Ananias is directed by the Lord. In verse 11, the Lord says to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and it still exists in Damascus today. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. 
as you know, as I'm preparing for the <clears throat> talk in, in San Antonio in another month or so on Islam, I've been reading through the Quran. I'm just, again, impressed. Read through, sometime, read through the Bible. After you've read through the Bible all the way once or twice, so you become familiar with the text of Scripture, take some time to read the Book of Mormon. Not a lot, but just read through a couple of chapters in the Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita, and you'll be amazed at the, the radical difference there is between how the Bible is written on the one hand and how these other books are. They're, they're like cheap counterfeits. And they are they, they just don't have the same resonance or the same kind of description. In many cases, uh, especially like with the Book of Mormon, it's written by somebody in the early 1800s who's trying to imitate English from Elizabeth, the Elizabethan period, and so it is really awkward to, uh, to understand. But it is so, the, the clarity of the New Testament, the writers of Scripture, in just describing the events and what's going on, you, you're not looking for hidden meanings and all these other things. It's just simple uh, direction. Go to the house of Judas. Everybody would know where that was. Uh, and look for Saul of Tarsus, he's praying. And in a vision, now we learn that Saul has had a vision as well, same as we'll see in Acts 10, God spoke to both sides, told Saul, somebody named Ananias is coming, told Ananias, you're going to go to Saul. Uh, in Acts, in verse 12, in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, how honest Ananias is. He's fearful. He said, Lord, I'm not sure I want to do this. this I've heard about this guy. This guy, I mean, this, is, this would be like, like you're a, 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 a Jew, a rabbi, and you're being told to go to Heinrich Himmler and to heal him of, of, of his blindness. Uh, this would be taking your life in your hands. He doesn't want to do it. He says, I've heard uh, about this man from many, how much harm, how uh, how much harm, how murderous he's been to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he's honest about his fear. Sometimes we need, need to be that way in our prayer. I know this is some, one of the things that happens a lot with Christians is we think that I'm not supposed to be afraid. So if I'm praying, you know, I've confessed my sin of fear. I'm not going to tell God I'm afraid. He knows you're afraid and worried. Read the Psalms. How many times David talks about, Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to do it. I'm afraid. Or, Lord, I, I know you want me to do something. I, I just don't want to do it. Lord, this. Lord, he, the prayers of David are very honest about where, where he is in his spiritual life. We need to be that way as well. Um, and Ananias is that way. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Now, notice how we always focus on the fact that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. But what does, what does the Lord say about him here? He's chosen to go to the Gentiles, and he's going to go before kings and the children of Israel. Paul was not, by being the apostle to the Gentiles, 
he was not excluded from giving the gospel to the Jews. That's part of the commission that Jesus relates right here. He's not the he's not the apostle to the to the Jews like Peter, but I've heard some dispensationalists criticize Paul because he was an apostle to the Gentiles. Didn't he understand that? He always took the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Why was he hanging out in the synagogues all the time? Why did he go back to Jerusalem later on? Doesn't he understand he's the apostle to the Gentiles? Yeah, but being the apostle to the Gentiles did not exclude being a, a, a messenger and a representative and a witness of the gospel to the children of Israel as well. And the Lord says, For I will show him many things, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Go open up his eyes so he can see how I'm going to make it, how he's going to suffer for me. Isn't that a message to warm your heart? He's been called to suffer. He's going to suffer many things. And we think about some of the things Paul says later on in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Some of the other passages where he talks about, like 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, talks about the beatings in chapter 12, the beatings, the whippings, the times he's in jail, the number of times. We only know of one shipwreck, but three times he's shipwrecked. All of these different things that happened to him, and it didn't cause him to stop. He didn't get weary. He didn't say, Lord, I just don't want to do it today. I'm just going to stay in bed. He he understood the mission from the very very beginning. Acts 9.17, Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hand on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word that he uses here for filling is not the word we find in Ephesians 5.18. That's plerao. This is a different word. It is pimplamian. I've pointed this out before that pimplami often refers to an event, a type of filling that precedes some sort of speaking. It is often, I think, related to uh, some sort of divinely inspired uh, statement. Now, we're not told about that immediately. We're told that all Ananias says here is that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't hear about the speaking until about verse uh, 20. Immediately, the fell from his eyes something like scales. He received his sight at once. It's not this gradual healing like you see in these uh, healing services today. The healing in Scripture is instantaneous. It's not like, well, you'll, you'll see a little fuzzy light, and the next day you'll see a little more and a little more, and maybe in three or four months your sight will return completely. No, it's instant. He, he re- receives his sight back fully. He arose. And notice, he doesn't wait to be baptized. He's baptized immediately, indicating the significance. He understood the significance of this. He had witnessed it. He had seen it. This was a significant event, especially if you were Jewish, because this was an identification with Jesus as Messiah. And he doesn't waste any time. He is baptized immediately. Then verse 19, he receives food. Remember, he hasn't eaten for three days. He received some food. He strengthened. And then he spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Now, I think what this is at the front end. I think he spent some time in Damascus. Then I think he goes out to Arabia for, for a while. We don't know how long. Then he comes back to Damascus. And that total period of time is approximately uh, three years 
or, or a little less, before he goes to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't talk about him going into Arabia. That's not part of his purpose. He telescopes the incidences, and I think that between verse 19 and verse 20 is when uh, Paul is out in Arabia. Verse 20, we read, immediately he preached uh, the Christ, HaMashiach, HaChristos, in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Notice the emphasis, and he's proclaiming this, that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the only time we have this full phrase in the book of Acts, that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 21, all who heard this were amazed and said, isn't this the one who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Messiah. Notice, he's arguing, he's talking, he's discussing all the time, and he's showing from the scriptures who Jesus is. Now, a couple of things before I close out tonight. When we witness to people, we need to do the best we can do. Now, you're not going to be the Apostle Paul, neither am I. You're not going to be as well-schooled today as you will five years from now in your use of scriptures. There are some things, though, that you and I can always master that help us. Number one is just know five or six good verses like John 3.16, John 3.18, John uh, 3.36, Acts 16.31, uh, verses like this that are just good gospel verses, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Memorize those, those scriptures. Second thing, as we see with this event uh, in Acts uh, 9, Paul refers to his own testimony in Acts 22 and Acts 26. He does it in Galatians 1 and Philippians 3 and Timothy. And he always goes back to his personal testimony. And that is something that, that we all can do. And maybe you, you're sitting going, yeah, but, you know, I'm like you, Robbie. I, I, I got saved when I was six years old. I really don't know what it was like before that. I, don't, I barely remember the fact that I trusted Jesus when I was that young. Sure, but there was some point in your life when you decided it was it was fish or cut bait time in terms of of your walk with the Lord, and and whether or not you really believed what you had already believed. Because when we're growing up, we all have that experience where this is what our folks did, this is what our families did, but at some point between probably fifteen and twenty five, you reach a point where you realize that's not their faith; it's your faith. What do you believe? What, what is going to be real in your life? And at that point, you go th- we go through a, sort of a reevaluation and decide what is ours. That's part of your testimony, something you can describe to other people. And that is very much a part of Paul's witness again and again and again is to tell others about what Jesus did for him, his own life story, that God the Holy Spirit uh, uses that. And then the other part of that is being able to talk to other people. And the, you know how you learn how to talk to unbelievers about the gospel? By talking to unbelievers about the gospel. You don't learn how to do it by sitting at home and watching a tape or listening to a tape or watching somebody on TV or listening to a class on evangelism. The only way we learn how to talk to people is by talking to people. And, and that means many times we're going to feel inadequate. We're going to feel like we just didn't have the right answer. Later on, we're going to play Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning quarterback and think, oh, you know, the, the, the wrong set of referees was in. 
You know, we had the backup team likes what's happened the last couple of days in pro football. Um, somebody else should have been there. The Holy Spirit wasn't there. God must have sent the backup team. We, God, the Holy Spirit, is in control, but he doesn't do it apart from us. And it, as, as we may think we blunder, but the Holy Spirit uses it. And one of the most important things is, uh, that I found is just and when we are who we are, when we're just us, when we're just, it's just part of our life and people watch us, you'd be amazed how many people are watching you because they know you're a Christian. And I've heard this from people from, for, for decades uh, that people, people would say things. I remember one time years ago when I used to live about three blocks from where I live now and I was first out of college, I was like a, less than a block from Spring Branch Community Church and I'd walk over there on Thursday nights to go to the college and career Bible class and sometimes on Sunday morning and sometime years later I was talking to somebody who also lived in those apartments had no idea they said well you know that was really impressive I used to watch you go to church every Sunday you never know who's watching you and what they're watching what they're observing so you know it's our life and people want to hear and will pay attention to our story they may or may not believe it but God the Holy Spirit can use it for an impact so that's part of our witnessing next time we'll come back we'll finish up with with Paul and what happens to him here in Damascus, and then we will uh, see the shift to Peter. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word this evening and to be reminded of how you use us to witness that you have uh, chosen in your plan to use those who, of us who are just uh, we're sinners, we make mistakes, we're not always as prepared and as trained as we could be or should be, but we have a desire to be a faithful witness and to just approximate what Paul did and and be used by you in ways that are similar. We just pray that you would give us opportunities to communicate the gospel to those around us and that we might have the strength and the courage of the Holy Spirit to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.